right. Well, we are um, sort of accidentally, that's not really true, but you get the idea, uh, in working through uh, a portion of the book of Acts uh, as we uh, move towards summertime. And uh, today we are going to be in chapter 10, and normally I print for you in your insert the scripture passage that we will be reading, uh, but there was a little too much text to fit there this week, and so we're going to be reading, uh, you can follow along on the screen behind me, or there should be a Bible in the seat, one of the seats in front of you if you'd like to follow along in uh, black and white, and, uh, but we're going to be reading uh, a story that represents a uh, very important turn in the life of God's people. Uh, Up until the time that you're about to read, uh, everyone who has come to know who Jesus Christ is as the Messiah, as the hope of Israel, has had some relationship to Judaism. Uh, you might th- you might say to me, well, there wasn't there the Ethiopian guy that was, uh, you know, that came to Christ just a couple chapters before this, or and I would say, uh, yes, in fact, there was an Ethiopian guy that came to Christ just a few chapters before this. However, if you recall, uh, he was reading um, from the book of Isaiah in the Old Testament. And so this would have been someone from Ethiopia who had uh, vast exposure to uh, Judaism and its teachings and all of this. The man we're going to encounter today uh, has likely little working knowledge of Judaism, and he is genetically uh, Roman. Uh, He's from far, far away, and he's been stationed Uh, in this town in Palestine uh, as a part of a military outpost. And so he represents the very group of people that Israel hated the most. Are you clear on that? Okay. So it was going to require a little bit of a push to get God's people to leave their little clique and go out and share the good news of Jesus Christ with people who were not like them. In fact, this man was not only unlike them, he was a military officer in a time of oppression in Israel. And so uh, you could just sort of sense the reluctance of God's people, and you'll pick up on that a little bit in this passage, or at least how interested God is in overcoming our reluctance. So we're going to be in the 10th chapter of the book of Acts. I'm going to begin in verse 1, and we will read uh, through to verse 48. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion in what was known as the Italian regiment. He and all his family were devout and God-fearing. He gave generously to those in need and prayed to God regularly. One day, at about three in the afternoon, he had a vision. 
he distinctly saw an angel of God who came to him and said, Cornelius. Cornelius stared at him in fear. What is it, Lord? He asked. The angel answered, Your prayers and gifts to the poor have come up as a memorial offering before God. Now, send men to Joppa to bring back a man named Simon, who is called Peter. He is staying with Simon the Tanner, whose house is by the sea. When the angel who spoke to him had gone, Cornelius called two of his servants and a devout soldier who was one of his attendants. He told them everything that had happened and sent them to Joppa. About noon the following day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the roof to pray. He became hungry and wanted something to eat, and while the meal was being prepared, he fell into a trance. He saw heaven opened, and something like a large sheet being let down to earth by its four corners. It contained all kinds of four-footed animals, as well as reptiles of the earth and birds of the air. Then a voice told him, Get up, Peter, kill and eat. Surely not, Lord, Peter replied. I have never eaten anything impure or unclean. The voice spoke to him a second time. Do not call anything impure that God has made clean. This happened three times, and immediately the sheet was taken back to heaven. While Peter was wondering about the meaning of the vision, the men sent by Cornelius found out where Simon's house was and stopped at the gate. They called out, asking if Simon, who was known as Peter, was staying there. While Peter was still thinking about the vision, the Spirit said to him, Simon, three men are looking for you, so get up and go downstairs. Do not hesitate to go with them, for I have sent them. Peter went down and said to the men, I'm the one you're looking for. Why have you come? The men replied, We have come from Cornelius the centurion. He is a righteous and God-fearing man who is respected by all the Jewish people. A holy angel told him, I have a holy angel told him to have you come to his house so that he could hear what you have to say. Then Peter invited the men into the house to be his guests. The next day, Peter started out with them, and some of the brothers from Joppa went along. The following day, he arrived in Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them and had called together his relatives and close friends. As Peter entered the house, Cornelius met him and fell at his feet in reverence. But Peter made him get up. He said, I am only a man myself. Talking with him, Peter went inside and found a large gathering of people. He said to them, You are well aware that it is against our law for a Jew to associate with a Gentile or visit him. But God has shown me that I should not call any man impure or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without raising any objection. May I ask why you sent for me? Cornelius answered, Four days ago, I was in my house praying at this hour. At three in the afternoon, suddenly a man in shining clothes stood before me. He said, Cornelius, God has heard your prayer 
and remembered your gifts to the poor. Send to Joppa for Simon, who is called Peter. He is a guest in the home of Simon the Tanner, who lives by the sea. So I sent for you immediately, and it was good of you to come. Now we are all here in the presence of God to listen to everything the Lord has commanded you to tell us. Then Peter began to speak. I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but accepts men from every nation who fear him and do what is right. You know the message God sent to the people of Israel telling the good news of peace through Jesus Christ, who is Lord of all. You know what has happened throughout Judea beginning in Galilee after the baptism that John preached, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and power, and how he went around doing good and healing all who were under the power of the devil because God was with him. We are witnesses of everything he did in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They killed him by hanging him on a tree, but God raised him from the dead on the third day and caused him to be seen. He was not seen by all the people, but by witnesses whom God had already chosen, by us who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. He commanded us to preach to the people and testify that he is the one whom God appointed as judge of the living and the dead. All the prophets testify about him that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit came on all who heard the message. The circumcised believers who had come with Peter were astonished that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out even on the Gentiles, for they heard them speaking in tongues and praising God. Then Peter said, Can anyone keep these people from being baptized with water? They have received the Holy Spirit just as we have. So he ordered that they be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked Peter to stay with them for a few days. What divides in our culture? What are the things that divide people? What's that? Beliefs? Money? Money, class, what? Class? Like juniors and seniors, you mean? No. I get it. I know what you mean. Power, those who have, those who do not. Prejudice, education, race, politics. Thank you, well said. All right. Um, and most of us, if we are honest, are fairly comfortable that way. We're comfortable around people who share something in common with us. Um, Peter is just minding his own business. He goes up on his roof to pray, 
he has no intention of, uh, well, doing much that day, I don't suppose. Certainly not what he's going to end up doing the next day. And God comes to him and gives him this bizarre vision. Now, if you're like me, this is, the, you know, I'm going to combine a couple of verses here because it's just a beautiful, inspiring thought. What does God say to Peter? Arise, kill, and eat, call nothing unclean. This is the hunter's verse right here, all right? And if you're wondering what was on the sheet, just go to Louisiana, open a menu, and that's what was on the sheet, right? Uh, so God comes to Peter and gives him this bizarre vision. And Peter doesn't understand it, right? It says twice he was still trying to figure out what in the world this meant. What does this mean? Why would God ask me to get up and kill and eat this, this buffet of unclean animals? You see, Peter, his whole life, had followed a set of dietary rules because he believed that holiness, spiritual holiness, should be reflected in the way we live and what, in the way we eat. That what we eat and what we say and how we live is all a reflection of the holiness of God. And so he always followed the rules. So God himself says to Peter, arise, kill, and eat. Call nothing unclean. What does Peter say? <laughs> no, 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 no. That's not in the rule book. I've been following the rules. And I've been pretty good at it and really good about it. So why are you changing the playbook now? Well, God is going somewhere with this whole thing. And at first, I think it would be very tempting to think that this is predominantly about diet because God shows him these unclean animals and says, you know, get up, kill, and eat. Um, but when Peter finally figures it out, do you remember what he said? Did you see it? He said, God has shown me, and I'm paraphrasing here, but that I should not call other people unclean that God has deemed to be clean. So all of these things that divide us, that make one group of people set apart from another, are unimportant in the eyes of God. They're not what matters. And we have the first glimpse of understanding in the church that this is not exclusively a Jewish Messiah. Yes, he came to fulfill all of the prophecies of the Old Testament. Yes, he came to perfectly fulfill 
all of the law of God as it is required in the, in the Old Testament. But is his gift, the gift of the sacrifice of his life, just for the Jewish people? To, to elevate them to the status they felt they deserved. That they had been robbed of by the Roman Empire who occupied their land and, well, collected taxes from their people and just generally practiced, uh, well, oppression, right? And God says to Peter, he gives him this bizarre dream, and then he has three men knocking on his door who are all foreigners, who are all from the household of a Roman military officer. And Peter immediately gets it. He says, okay, I think I figured this out. God's grace is unconditional. It's not for a limited number of people. It is for all nations. And I want us to try to glean from this passage something of what God wants from us in reading this. To sort of look at these two responses to the prompting of God as we take up this idea of unconditional grace. What does it mean? What does it mean for us? First, I'm going to point us towards the call to follow God's prompting. You see, two different people in this passage are prompted in two different ways. Um, Cornelius is prompted by an angel. And I want you to think about this for a minute. This guy is uh, a trained killer. He has the most sophisticated, uh, technologically advanced weaponry and armor in the world at the time that he lives. He is afraid of no one. And enter his house, this angel. What is Cornelius' reaction? Fear. It is a, oh, okay, I don't think I'm equipped for this one. Um, so this call to follow God's prompting begins with a call to obedience in spite of our fears and in step with our faith. Why did God pick Cornelius? Do you remember? It actually tells us. He gave to the poor, and he prayed to God. And it, there's pretty good evidence that Cornelius had some vague understanding of, of the God of the Jews, um, but he was not very well-versed. He certainly, as a Roman officer, had been debriefed on this uprising in Jerusalem that resulted in the death of Jesus Christ. And uh, so Peter alludes to that. But uh, God comes to Cornelius not because Cornelius was more deserving than anyone else, but 
God was looking for a starting point. And Cornelius was the perfect bridge between the gospel and the rest of the world. The gospel at this time existed and was perpetuated among the Jewish people. There, was, there were Ethiopians and Samarit- Samaritans who also had come to know Christ, but these are all people who are associated with Judaism to some extent, at least, well, in some way or another. Cornelius is the first, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Goyim, all right? Uh, that's the Jewish word for uh, foreigner, okay? One who ain't one of us. And, uh, okay. Cornelius has some degree of faith existing already that God has given him. And I don't think it's a very sophisticated theological understanding of the Bible. I think it's just a general sense that there is a God and we need to do good as his children. And so God chooses a good man to start with, a man that is respected and known, not because Cornelius was more deserving of this gift, but because it was a good starting place. It would challenge to the core the presuppositions of the people who already knew Christ, and it would open the door for the gospel to the entire rest of the world. And so God calls Cornelius to obedience in spite of his fears and in step with his faith, and he calls us just like Peter to change in spite of our hesitations, you remember what Peter bravely, bravely said when God said, arise, kill, and eat. Peter said, no, 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 you got the wrong guy. I don't eat Cajun food. I really, uh, it's not my, upsets my stomach. And, you know, if you're from Louisiana, I actually respect your cuisine. Please don't be offended. I love that food. Um, uh, okay, so God says to Peter, you need to change. You need to get over your hesitations. And you need to get in step with my grace. Because my grace doesn't look at the world the way you do. It doesn't see these barriers, these divisions, these classes of people. My grace is available to all people, to all nations. And Peter recognizes this eventually, of course. But there is, there is a calling to each one of us here to change, to open our minds a little bit and pursue taking the gospel even across lines we no, would not normally go. We're to follow God's prompting and we're to spread God's word, the Bible tells us. We're to spread the word about the good news of Jesus Christ. And that is the word, if, if you ever hear me use the word gospel, that's uh, the English butchering of a Greek word that if you translated the Greek word, it would just mean good news. That's what it means, the gospel. And so Peter has this knowledge that has been uh, impressed upon his soul that 
you know, this is the guy, if you remember, who, who said to Jesus, you know, I will never betray you. I'll never let you down. And Jesus says, actually, uh, before morning, you'll deny knowing me three different times. No, 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 Lord, that'll never be. Boom, boom, boom. Peter blew it. And he understood something about grace, that it's not based on how qualified we are, upon how well-behaved we are, upon how faithful we are, but the grace of God is based entirely upon how faithful God is. And Peter was called to share this good news, that it is for everyone, for all nations, for all peoples, those we get along with and those we don't. That this good news is not only for everyone, but that it comes directly from God. And Peter alludes to this in his speech, that God's been talking about this guy for millennia. In fact, since the very first humans stumbled into sin, God ushered a promise before them. He said, evil will beset you. There will be conflict. But over time, as evil nips at your heel, I will send one who will fulfill this promise to crush the head of evil. And that one is Jesus Christ. And Peter was called to spread this news as we are called to spread this good news. And so we spread God's word, the good news of Christ, and we spread God's word of forgiveness through Christ. That he died for our sins. And Peter was very blunt about Christ's death, um, but very quick to move to the resurrection. Christ died for our sins, and he was raised to give us hope. And so this gospel is, for the first time in history, passed from a Jewish context to where? Across a threshold that opens the door for the gospel to go out to the whole world. Look at us. You know, just a little over a year ago, this was dirt where we're sitting. And this land was untouched by man for, well, since it was created, really. Um, Not much had happened here. We need a plaque, you know, on June 7th of 1817. Nothing happened here, right? Um, And the gospel, since the time of Peter talking to Cornelius, has broken out of the Jewish bubble in which it existed and was born and has been spreading across the world. And we're part of that, even today, the spreading of God's Word. And so we are to follow the prompting of God when He moves. And we're to spread His Word to all people. And we're to move with His Spirit. Now, 
you were probably just following along just fine when I was reading earlier, right? And then people start busting out in tongues and doing freaky things, and you're like, oh, here we go, all right? He's going to go weird on us this morning. Um, the speaking in tongues that occurs in this passage, for whom was it done to benefit? That didn't make good English sense. Who was it to benefit? Who? The Jews. So you remember it talked about the circumcised believers who were present? Okay? They heard the tongues, and what was their reaction? <laughs> Whoa. I've seen that before. You see, the day that Christ ascended to heaven was a Jewish holiday called Pentecost. And on that day, the Holy Spirit descended upon the followers of Christ and gave them the ability to speak in tongues. And so it's kind of a... Pentecost was... I mean, this is a little bit of a loose analogy because it has a little more meaning than this, but it's kind of like fiesta. People come from all over the place to be there for this event. It's a party. It's a celebratory holiday. And so there's people from all over the world who are in Jerusalem that day. Jesus goes up to heaven. The Holy Spirit comes down on God's people, and they begin to speak in different languages. And people from all over the Jewish world, or Jews from all over the world is probably a better way to put it, who were in Jerusalem for that festival, heard the gospel in their native foreign tongues because the Holy Spirit had moved on those disciples. And the church grew by thousands in a day. Well, here, it works the opposite way. The non-Jews are descended upon by the Holy Spirit. And they begin uttering phrases probably in Aramaic and or Hebrew. Languages they could not possibly have known. But that would have been the home tongue of these men. Who were there. The tongues was not to edify the new believers. The gift of tongues that came that day that this passage tells us clearly was for getting the old believers out of their hole over this hill to, to sort of blow their minds and cause them to change what they believed we are to recognize the movement of the Spirit. When God moves, we need to be people who listen, who respond, who see the signs and open our minds. Because the mindset of these people had been closed for centuries. And God calls Cornelius a man who represents everything they despise and pours out his spirit on this man and his household. And what an evangelist, I must say. Cornelius hasn't even heard what this is all about, and he fills his house with everybody he can find so that when Peter gets there, it's not just him and Cornelius, it's dozens upon dozens of people 
who get the benefit of hearing this and experiencing this. We must be able to recognize the movement of the Spirit, and we must be able to respond in sync with God's Spirit when He moves. Do you see Peter's final reaction? He basically says, okay, this is really obvious. Um, And he may at this point be the only one who fully gets it, but he's blown away. He says, okay, I think I know what to do. Um, We need to baptize these people to bring them into the family of God that we are already a part of. We need to make it clear to whom they belong and that, that we are one regardless of race, regardless of politics, regardless of gender, regardless of any of the things that divide. We have been made one through a sacrifice by God himself in the person of Jesus Christ who came and lived one of our lives. He was human. He was tempted. He was faced with all the uncertainties of this world. And he faced them all and laid down perfection at the feet of God and said, anyone who trusts in what I have done will be forgiven and saved. Will you pray with me? God, our Father, we marvel at the forgiveness that is ours through Jesus Christ. That you would not stop at death but you persevered through the resurrection to set before us the hope of life eternal Lord we thank you that this same movement that burst out of its Jewish bubble 2,000 years ago is still moving is still changing our hearts and the hearts of those around us. Lord, use us to shine the light of your grace in this dark and hurting world. May we be those who follow your leading, who sense when you're moving, who spread the good news of your love for us through Jesus Christ. Thank you for the gift of your church, for your word, for all that you have done for us through Christ and all that you will do through us for your glory and for the sake of your kingdom. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.